And please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1. I'm sure this is no revelation to you, but it's the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 1. You know, when we look through the history of the church, we find that the church has often faced terrible persecution. We see that many rulers have tried to crush Christianity and root it out, but the church stands because the church is Christ's church. He builds it. He is responsible for seeing to its success, and no matter how hard people try to crush the church, the church goes on because it's in God's purpose and God's plan. Now, this morning, as we look into the text that we're looking into this morning, we're going to finish off the first chapter, we're going to see a theme that the church stands on, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, when the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he points out in that passage of Scripture that Really, if there were no resurrection, there would be no purpose for us to follow God, and we would be the most miserable of all people. But Christ is risen. And this morning, as we look into this text, we're going to see truths about the risen Christ that are brought out in this text in such a unique way. This is a text that has a strong message about who Jesus is, so we need to listen to that message. But it's also a passage that talks about Christ's connection with the church, and that also is an important message. No matter what the church, no matter when the church, the church belongs to Christ, and He is the master of the church. He is the one who directs it and guides it. Oakland Bible Church is not Pastor Rob's church. It's not your church. It's Christ's church, and we are here because of Him. So let's begin to look into this text, and we begin with John sharing with us the context for the message that he's about to deliver. Now, in the first eight verses, John has already identified himself as the recipient of a revelation from God, but here John is reaffirming that, but he's about to transition into chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, where he's going to address a message to churches that were in what is now modern-day Turkey. And what he was going to do is share with them his connection, first of all, with the Lord Jesus Christ, but also his connection with these churches. So let's begin by looking at how John describes himself as a companion in suffering in the kingdom and in endurance. Look at what he says, starting at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus or in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, what he's saying here, I think, is important for us to grasp. First of all, he's calling himself a brother and partner in tribulation. When we look at church history and we see what John experienced as an apostle, we find that John was under severe persecution. 
Although all of the other apostles, according to church tradition, died martyrs' deaths, John did not. John lived to die a natural death. But it wasn't for lack of trying. As a matter of fact, during this writing of Revelation, the Roman emperor Domitian was over the head of Rome. And Domitian was noted for his cruel persecution of the Christian church. As a matter of fact, according to some of the early church fathers, John himself experienced attempted murder and torture because what Tertullian tells us is that he was boiled in oil before he was first sent to Patmos. As a matter of fact, this is what Tertullian writes. The Apostle John was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil and then remitted to his island exile. Now, those of you who have cooked with hot oil and have had some splash on your skin, you know what that feels like. Can you imagine being lowered into a vat of boiling oil, and yet God preserved John miraculously, and he survived that attempt at taking his life. Something that did happen to John, though, was exile. According to the Word of God, right at the close of this ninth verse, John shares with us that he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Now, John would have been an elderly man at this point, and Patmos was an island in the Aegean Sea just off the coast of Turkey. And this was a place of hard labor. As a matter of fact, it was a quarry of sorts. And so here is an older man forced into hard labor. And yet, in this environment, God speaks to John and gives him an important message, the book of Revelation. So John is faithful to God, but God is also faithful to John. But it's what's sandwiched in between John's identification and that story about Patmos that I want us to really focus. Look at what the Word of God says, and notice how John describes himself. He is a partner, a brother in tribulation. Now, tribulation carries with it the idea of extreme suffering, the idea of serious trial. John, in staying on Patmos, was being subjected to hard labor in his latter years. He was no doubt being persecuted even as he was on the Isle of Patmos. And then there was severe persecution that John experienced leading up to Patmos. And this says something that I think is essential for us to understand. When we are walking with God, when we are seeking to live for God, that is no guarantee that life is going to be easy. As a matter of fact, the promise of Scripture is we can expect persecution. We can expect trials because Jesus, who was perfect, experienced those things as well. As our master, he experienced persecution, so as followers of Jesus, we can expect the same. John was a partaker. So as he shares with the people that were undergoing persecution, this book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, he is sharing with them as a fellow journeyer who is on his way to glory, but who is facing persecution along the way. Look at how else he describes himself. He is also a partner in the kingdom. What gives the person facing struggles and trials the ability to keep on keeping on? 
I would submit to you that it is a focus that we are not of this world. We belong to the kingdom of God. So what John is reminding his readers and people who read the book of Revelation for all time, what he's reminding them of is this. The suffering that we experience here and now is temporary, but we have the kingdom of God that we are now a part of, but that we will experience at a time that is yet to come. What a great hope that is for the followers of Jesus Christ. We have the kingdom. We are partners in the kingdom. That should influence the way I view my fellow believer, but that should also influence the way I view my trials. These are but for a time. They don't last forever, but the kingdom, the kingdom of God, that's an eternal kingdom, and I'm part of it. One other description is also their partner in patient endurance. Patient endurance. You know what that means? It has the idea of keep on keeping on. A lot of people believe that when they're under the blessing of God, there's enjoyment. Enjoyment meaning things feel great, things feel wonderful. Listen, what I've found as I have aged in my faith and in my years There's a lot of life that is just slogging through, right? Patiently enduring the things that happen to us. There's sadness. There's struggle. There's trial. But we have the wherewithal to patiently endure. Why? Because of Jesus Christ and because we look forward to His kingdom when things will be set right. That's our hope. That's what we hang on to. The Apostle Paul put it this way. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, by the way, in the context, when Paul talks about this light momentary affliction, he had cataloged the terrible things of persecution that he had experienced. And yet, here he is calling it light momentary affliction. Then he goes on to say this, we looked not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the perspective that gives you patient endurance. And this is what John was sharing with his readers. That's what kept him keeping on. And I would submit to you, that's what keeps us keeping on. If you're in the midst of struggle and trial and difficulty right now, it's transient. It's temporary. It will come to a close. You have eternity that awaits you. You have the God of eternity who is with you. You can make it through the most difficult of trials. Something else that John communicates in this text. He's going to communicate a vision from the Spirit of God for seven churches that are mentioned right here in this text. So let's look carefully at what he has to say about this in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, 
What we're going to do as we enter into more of the book of Revelation is see that the book of Revelation is speaking in terms of a vision that John experiences. And just a word about visions. Number one, sometimes when we read in Scripture these characters in Scripture who have visions, we look at that and some people teach that this is normative, that everybody has visions and they should have them all the time and God is going to speak to everyone in terms of visions and that if you don't hear from God in terms of a vision, there's something wrong with you. Not true, okay? The visions that take place in Scripture were unique, unusual, not necessarily normative. So what we need to understand is John is sharing this vision with us. He is in the twilight of his life. He's on the island of Patmos. And then according to the 10th verse, what he was doing was he was worshiping God on the Lord's Day. Now, what I believe the Lord's Day refers to is a time of worship on the first day of the week, Sunday, just like we're doing this morning. And John even though he probably didn't have a church, still carved that time out to worship God because he had been in a church. As a matter of fact, prior to going to Patmos, he was the pastor at the church of Ephesus, what's going to be mentioned right away in the first verse of the second chapter. So here is John, he's, he's worshiping God, and as he's worshiping God, the Spirit of God comes upon him and he gives him this vision. He shares with him the truths that we're about to look into. And what he shares in this 10th verse is that when he had this vision, he heard a voice behind him like a trumpet. So here he is having a vision, but rather than seeing something immediately, he hears a very loud voice, a, a, a voice that cannot be ignored. And he compares it to the blast of a trumpet. And then what he states is this, verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, when we look at these churches, this is a map that will show us the area. Patmos is the little black dot uh, just beneath the center of the page. That's where John was. Those numbers, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, those are the churches that John was to send this vision that he was given to. So these are actual churches, as I said, on what is now modern day Turkey. And he's going to share a message that was supernaturally delivered to him by the Spirit of God. These churches are actual churches. They were in the first century. They would have been probably about 40 or 50 years in to their ministry. And here is John sharing with them messages of God's truth. So when we get into chapters 2 and 3 and we start looking at these churches and we see some of the unique problems that they were experiencing... We're going to see that although these letters were to literal churches, historical churches, during the time of John, the messages that are shared are for all people all the time. I think like so much of Scripture as we go through this, we're going to see things that we can identify with. We're going to see parallels in what is stated. 
And that's exactly why God has included these things into the eternal Word of God. Now, as we continue in the text, we now come to the next section of this part of the first chapter. And that is Christ's power and authority over the church. Look carefully with me as we come to the 12th verse, and we see that Christ controls the church as Lord of all. Now, just a word before we get into this. When we start getting into the vision itself, we're going to see language that is used that is radically different than language that describes like a historical event or language that comes from one of the apostles as he writes a letter to a church where he's teaching them doctrine. The, lit, the, the language of vision is a language that often sounds unusual to us. As a matter of fact, when we look in the Old Testament and we see some of the visions that are described, some of the characters, if we were to picture them as described, would look almost grotesque. But the language of the vision is illustrating some truths that, although they are literal truths, they use figurative language to describe those truths. And that's what John is doing here in this first chapter. So, when we begin to look at this description of Jesus Christ, when you get to heaven, that does not necessarily mean that you are going to see Christ as described in this text. You will not see a double-edged sword coming out of His mouth. You will not see burnished bronze for feet necessarily, okay? These are descriptive ways of talking about some of the characteristics and the attributes of Jesus Christ formed and framed in the language of a vision. So let's look into this and let's try and understand exactly what is being communicated. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. Now, here's, here's the vision. We know that the lampstands are figurative because in verse 20, we're going to be told exactly what those lampstands were, okay? So, we'll save that for a little bit later, but right now we're going to talk to the one who was in the center of those lampstands, and notice he is described as one like a son of man. Now, what is the Bible talking about when it uses this term, son of man? When we look in the Gospels, we see that Jesus would refer to himself as the Son of Man. Does that mean that he was born human because of Mary and the virgin birth? No. When we look in Scripture, we see that this description of Jesus being the Son of Man is actually taken from Daniel. And in the prophet Daniel's writing, this is what he says, I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Now, in Daniel's vision, he was talking about the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of God, the one who would come and be the Savior of Israel and ultimately the Savior of the world. So, when we look in Revelation and we see this designation, son of man, what we're doing is looking back into the Old Testament, and we're seeing one 
who was identified as Messiah, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man in the Gospels. Every time Jesus said he was the Son of Man, every Jew in earshot of that would have heard that and known he was saying that he was the Messiah. It was an important designation. And so here John is reaffirming that by seeing this in the vision. He is like the Son of Man. He is the one promised in the book of Daniel. But we see other characteristics as we look further into this description. Look at verse 13. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, once again, we go back into the book of Daniel, and we find that he is described uniquely in this way as well. He says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. This is a description, again, of the Messiah. This is a messianic illusion that we find here in this text. And what we find in John's description is extremely similar, isn't it? We find that he is like the Son of Man. He's clothed in a long robe. He has a golden sash around his chest. His hairs of his head are like white wool, like snow. His eyes are like the flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Do you see the connection between Daniel and the book of Revelation? John is saying this is Jesus that Daniel was talking about. And this vision that he was given is the confirmation of who Jesus is. Now, we need to understand as we look into this text that this language that is describing Jesus even goes beyond what we find in Daniel. Many Bible scholars and teachers see the descriptions of Jesus in this text as referring to various attributes. And most of them center on the same ideas because as you look in the Old Testament and you see an attribute that describes God, so you can look into the New Testament and find that John is employing these same pictures of Jesus. For instance, the white clothing and the golden sash, those represent the purity and the priesthood of Jesus. The white hair, you know, when you have white hair, it means you've been around a while. Mine's getting more and more white with each hair cutting. Uh, it's eternality. Sorry, folks, if you have white hair, you are not eternal. You've just been around a little while. Eyes like a flame and carries with it the idea of piercing and, and, and seeing into the truth and, and, and finding judgment over sin. The brazen feet, when we look in the Old Testament, the image of God stepping on His enemies and crushing them, judgment, and so that's what's carried by this image of Christ. The voice like the roar of waters is the power and authority of His Word. The holding the seven stars, His authority over church. The double-edged sword, his ability to speak truth that comes out of his mouth. 
he's able to speak truth. As in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. And then the face like the shining sun, this is, this is his glory. If you remember, the glory that Jesus demonstrated on the Mount of Transfiguration was startling to the disciples when they were with him and they saw him allow the glory that he had within to manifest itself without. All of these are pictures of the power and the majesty and the glory of Jesus. And you know, as I was reading this, I started to think how often in our culture we try to make a user-friendly Jesus. Somebody that we can feel comfortable with. Somebody that makes us not think about our sin, not think about our weakness. Somebody that's kind of one of us, just like us. Not God, not judge, but a user-friendly Jesus. This is not what John sees in this vision. It's not what he describes in this vision. He is sharing with us a unique Jesus, different, different than what we see in our descriptions of who Jesus is. And that brings us to the next part of this passage. Jesus carries the authority to deliver and to condemn. Look at what we find as we come to verses 17 and 18. Notice it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, I want you guys to think about this for a moment. John was one of the 12 disciples, right? He was at Jesus' side all the time. As a matter of fact, when we read the Gospel of John, you know how John describes himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. When he's described in the upper room, he's right next to Jesus and He's so close to him that Jesus can speak in his ear a secret message just for John. He knew Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. <coughs> he was with him all the time. And now, when he sees the Jesus of this vision, what does it do to him? He's overwhelmed by fear. And by the way, if I saw what John described, I would be afraid too. All of us would, right? This is a startling picture of, of Jesus. But then look at verse 17 and see what happens. I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. Jesus comforted John. Even though John was frightened by this vision, this is the same Jesus. And he reaches down to John in his fear and he lays his hand on him and he comforts him because even this Jesus loves John. The description of this vision, though terrifying, <coughs> is a description of the same Jesus that John knew. And he loved him. And he cared for him. 
and he comforted him. There's a tricky balance between formulating a user-friendly Jesus and going to the other extreme and making Jesus so fearful that we can't fellowship with him and worship him. We need to see Jesus in all of his glory, in his lordship, in his power, in his strength, but we also need to understand that this Jesus loves us and we have a personal relationship with him through faith. So somehow bringing those two truths together gives us the right picture, the complete picture of Jesus. He invites us to come to him if we are weary and heavy laden. He tells us in the book of Hebrews that when we feel overwhelmed, we can come before his throne of grace boldly. But this Jesus is also the Son of Man who walks among the golden lampstands, who has all of the power and glory of God because He is God. We have to have a balanced view of who Jesus is. And part of that balanced view is also grasping the fact that He controls the churches. After He says, Fear not, I am the first and the last living one. I am the resurrected Christ. He shares with John, I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, I want you to think about what's being communicated in that. When Jesus says, I died and rose again, we know that he's talking about the Jesus of the Gospels, our Savior, our God. But then when he says, I hold the keys to death and Hades, What is he communicating? His authority over death and his authority to judge. You see, an important truth about Jesus is this. We either find him as Savior or we face him as judge. It sure makes a lot more sense to find him as Savior than to face him as judge. John wrote this in his gospel. Jesus' words, Truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given to Him authority to execute judgment because, now look at this, He is the Son of Man. John identifies Him as the Son of Man. He identifies Him with authority in His gospel and in the book of Revelation. But then it concludes with this. They will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus has the authority to discern between the two. And so that's his message as we are coming to the place to where he speaks to the church. So why all of this vision concerning who Jesus is? Why all of this vision concerning not making him a user-friendly Jesus because he is about to address the church in chapters 2 and 3. And this is the Word of God's way of saying, listen up, don't disregard this message, because this is a message from God in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to heed that and remember it as we enter into our study of chapters 2 and 3. This is who Jesus is. This is the one speaking. He's the same Jesus 
and where we identify with issues that are going on in the seven churches that we'll be looking into. We need to surrender those to the Lordship of Christ and follow Him. Last part of this passage. John is commanded to write down what is revealed. As a matter of fact, when we look in the 19th verse, the Scripture says this, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place. The command to John is very simple. It's a command that he is to write the things that have taken place, the things that are now in the present, and then the things that are in the future. I love Warren Wiersbe. Many of you know that he's one of my favorite teachers in God's Word. And he said the following, excuse me, to the best of my knowledge, the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that contains an inspired outline of the contents. The things you have seen refers to the vision of Revelation 1. So this is what John has just written down. The things that are refer to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the churches, the letters to the churches. And the things that shall take place hereafter are the things described in Revelation chapters 4 through 22. We are a part of the things that shall take place hereafter from John's perspective. But there's more to come. Last thought I want us to look at this morning. John was told to carry these messages to the church. Look at verse 20 and it says this, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now when it says the seven angels of the church, there's a lot of debate among Bible teachers as to whether this refers to a spiritual influence of an angel actually interacting with the church. I think there's less argument for that than the Greek word for angel is very simply messenger. And many Bible scholars, and I would agree with them so they have to be right, <laughs> many Bible scholars believe that this is a reference to the pastors of those churches. Listen, God puts churches in place, but God also puts pastors in those churches. And so the message that will be given in these letters to the churches are messages to the churches themselves, but also messages to the pastors, the leaders of those churches. So as they lead, they need to listen. I look forward to looking into these Letters to the churches. We're going to take one church at a time, and we'll begin next week with the church at Ephesus. So I look forward to looking into that together with you. Right now, let's close our time in the Word with a word of prayer. Gracious God, thank you for giving us this insight into the power and the majesty of our Lord. Lord, He is beyond description, beyond our comprehension. We recognize that He owns the church. This church and all of the churches throughout history and all of the churches throughout the world are Christ's. He purchased them with His blood. And He sees to their continuing or to their demise if they are disobedient. Lord God, I pray that we will have open hearts, open minds, ready to listen to the one so beautifully described in this first chapter, so powerfully presented 
as the Son of Man, the Messiah, our own Lord, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.